Good morning, church family. It's such a joy to get to spend some time together this morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Anselm, one of the pastors here at Ambassador, and I have the privilege of opening up God's word with you this morning. And if you want to go ahead, turn to Second Timothy with me, and that is the, the text we are going to be looking at this morning. Now, as Thomas mentioned, there are many of you out there that went on a great rafting trip yesterday. So I imagine many of you are exhausted this morning. But as I was reflecting yesterday uh, from my house upon how amazing it would be to be out there on the water, I just was reminded how amazing it is that we live in a country where we can be so close to so many beautiful, natural wonders just to be an hour or an hour and a half away and to experience great rafting and even greater fellowship. And though many of you who went rafting know it's beautiful and fun, there are also dangers associated with many of the outdoor activities we get to do. Some of you may know from firsthand experience that falling into the river is a very real hazard that could take place. You could get tossed by the water. If you were to go up into the mountains here, you could know very well that rock slides could be a possibility. Or if you were somebody who lives in the Midwest, you may know that tornadoes are not just a possibility, but a likelihood. And while there are dangers in this world, natural dangers, it's an amazing and gracious thing to know that the Lord has allowed Man, even in his fallen state, to use his mind to come up with some great safety tools and measures that can help protect us from some of those natural forces. For example, when you go rafting, I really hope you are all wearing a life vest. Some of you, maybe even a helmet. And one of these such safety measures that was put into place is, is actually put into place in a small town called Cannon Beach, Oregon. They recognized some of the natural forces that were present there, and they decided they needed some safety measures to be put in place. Now, on the Oregon coast, you're not exactly expecting wildfires because it rains all the time and it's lush and green. But you are on the coast, so something you do have to be prepared for is a tsunami. And so Cannon Beach decided to prepare for that reality. In the 1980s, they decided to put something into place. And what do you think they found was the answer in an area filled with tsunami hazards? Cows. No, not those kind of cows, but C-O-W-S, the coastal warning system. And that's what they put in place in the 1980s. The Cannon Beach Rural Fire Protection District decided to put seven 40-foot tall poles all throughout the town in order to warn the people in the case of a tsunami. And they decided this was necessary even though the last tsunami took place on Good Friday in 1964. So you would think with a warning system that's meant to get people's attention, you would choose a high-pitched, loud, obnoxious squealing noise to get people's attention right away. But what sound do you think Cannon Beach chose to put over their sound system with 
a defense system called cows. Moo. That is the noise the town of Cannon Beach decided to put in place in case of emergency. And though it's a a strange choice, those who reside in and visit Cannon Beach know that if you hear a moo, you better listen. You better drop what you're doing. You better course correct right away and head for high ground. Now, this morning, we have an opportunity to begin a new sermon series in Second Timothy. And this is a letter where Paul is striving to get Timothy's attention. He is urging Timothy to course correct ever so slightly. And he's calling him to heed his warning, because if he doesn't, he's going to be swept away in the cultural flood. Second Timothy is Paul's cows. Now, Second Timothy is, of course, Paul's second recorded letter to the beloved Timothy, and it took place uh, a little bit later than the first one, of course, which was 62 to 64 A.D. Now, at the time of the first letter to Timothy, Timothy had been placed by Paul in Ephesus to help the struggling church. And it was a church that was plagued by innumerable difficulties, such as false teachers and their following doctrine, wrongly ordered worship, a love of the world and a lack of qualified leadership. These were just a few of the difficulties that stared young Timothy straight in the face. So it's with this in mind that Paul wrote to give practical encouragement and instruction to young Timothy. Yes, but also the church in Ephesus. Now, as we fast forward three to five years, we're going to see there's been some change when we get to the second letter, but also much has unfortunately stayed the same for both Paul and and Timothy in the Ephesian church. Now, previously, Paul had been writing just after his first Roman imprisonment. And now, as Paul is writing, Christian persecution is worse than it has ever been. Paul, as he writes Second Timothy, is in a much more dire situation than when he wrote his first letter to Timothy. Paul has once again been arrested, but this time it's different. He has none of the comforts of being under house arrest. He has no opportunity for his loved ones to come and see him as they please. Rather, where Paul finds himself now writing Second Timothy, he's been abandoned. He's been abandoned by everybody in Asia Minor except Onesephorus. And Paul, as we read this letter, he's squirreled away in some hole in the ground in a wet, dark dungeon with barely enough light to write this letter to his beloved Timothy. Paul's situation has worsened since the last time he wrote Timothy. And it seems, again, that the same could be said of the church in Ephesus. Still running rampant. It's corrupt theology, heresy, apostasy, and persecution. Things were so bad that there was even the littlest bit of worry in the heart of Paul that that Timothy 
may have started to waver just ever so slightly. As we now together study and read this letter from Paul to Timothy, we need to recognize that as Paul is writing, he is writing his last will and testament. This is the last canonical letter he is going to write. He writes knowing full well, friends, that his days are limited. And as he sits in that dark hole in the ground, knowing his execution is going to be any day now, he knows that at the forefront of his mind must be not his worry of what is to come, but his concern for those around him and for young Timothy. In our passage this morning, Paul is going to utilize his office of apostle and his track record of faithfulness, as well as his relationship with Timothy to gain Timothy's attention. He reminds us as well that we must be strengthened by the Holy Spirit as we strive to pursue a life of faithfulness in service to the Lord. Timothy and each of us We're called not to allow our emotions, our actions, our loyalties to be dictated by the world that surrounds us, but by the Holy Spirit that empowers every single believer. And so this morning, as we look at this text and observe three distinct markers of Paul's love for Timothy, we will be presented with a very clear challenge from the Apostle Paul. To live the spirit-filled, the spirit-empowered life, and to remain faithful to the end of our days. First, this morning in in verses 1 and 2, we're going to see Paul's relationship with Timothy. Second, in verses 3 through 5, Paul's remembrance of Timothy. And please note that in those first five verses, we're going to see Paul utilizes those to serve as a way of preparing Timothy and us for the main point, which is going to come third in verses six to seven, where we see Paul's reminder to Timothy. So first, as we consider Paul's great love, we must observe Paul's relationship with Timothy. Look at the first two verses with me in second Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, By the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now here in the the opening verses of 2 Timothy, we see the beginning of Paul's appeal to Timothy. He's setting the stage now for the why behind the young pastor, listening to the very words that are going to follow. He does this in verse 1 first by emphasizing his apostolic authority. Now, whether or not we'd be willing to admit it, many of us may be likely to just skip past verses 1 and 2 at the beginning of a Pauline epistle, because often we view it as a simple greeting and nothing more. But we must remember, friends, that as we read this text, there is nothing here that is here by accident. There is no unnecessary word. Everything is inspired and necessary 
for us to understand this text. So Paul begins, he identifies himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So our author, he immediately points to the office that he holds, as well as the honor and privilege at whose he serves, whose pleasure it is to serve. He says that he is an apostolos or a sent one. And this title of Apostolos in the New Testament carries with it this idea of being an ambassador, one who comes with the authority and message of another. They are an appointed representative of somebody of much greater importance. And this is exactly who Paul is. He is an ambassador by the will and by the pleasure of God. He also serves, then saying, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Paul's emphasis in saying this to Timothy is is that proclaiming that what follows now is in full accordance with the message of the gospel. Yet the question still remains, it should be at the forefront of our mind, is why in the world does Paul identify him this, or himself this way to somebody he knows so well? I'm not going to go up to a friend of mine and say, I'm Jacob, the pastor from so-and-so. It seems a little odd. But Paul's introduction is meant to remind Timothy very clearly, and the audience as well, That Paul is not just his close friend, not just his father in the faith. But Paul, the apostle, is an ambassador. He is one who has been chosen to give a message of the Lord. The words of Paul, which shortly follow after, deserve Timothy's complete attention because Paul is acting as a divine messenger. That's why Paul starts by stating he is an apostle. And then in verse 2, Paul gives yet another reason why Timothy should listen to his coming message. If it wasn't enough that Paul has been called by God as a messenger, Paul points Timothy's attention back to his track record of faithfulness in their relationship with one another. And he does so simply by referring to Timothy as my beloved child. This is not a term that is used with flippancy on the part of the Apostle Paul. This is a term that is rooted in a love for Timothy that started a long time ago, and it has done nothing but deepen ever since. By this time, we have to understand that Paul and Timothy have known each other for 15 to 17 years now, and they've known of each other for even longer Many years prior, Paul had passed through Timothy's hometown on his first missionary journey. And though Paul did not interact with Timothy at that time, it's likely that he interacted with Timothy's mother and grandmother, who were likely converted at that time and then passed that true, undefiled faith on to Timothy. And what we do know is that as Paul returns on his second missionary journey, 
They begin to interact with one another. That is where their friendship starts. And Paul sees very quickly that Timothy is very useful as a traveling companion and as an effective minister of the gospel. Acts 16 and 17 tell us how Timothy was a part of Paul's journeys to Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And then after being apart for a time, they may have been reunited in Corinth. And then between A.D. 52 and 56, Timothy joined Paul once again on his third missionary journey, as we see in Acts chapter 20. Until eventually, as I mentioned at the onset of this message, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to pastor there. The ministry shared and the years of fellowship enjoyed together brought these two men as close as you could imagine. So then it's no wonder why Paul refers to Timothy as his beloved son in the faith, his beloved child. And it's with this being recalled to memory, along with Paul's apostolic authority, that Timothy would have had every inclination to hang on every single word Paul was about to write. When we stop for a moment and reflect upon the words and the actions of the Apostle Paul here, it truly is no reason why he or it's no wonder why he chooses to utilize such familial language when speaking of Timothy. Paul truly is acting towards Timothy the way a father should act towards his son. In his book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, Ted Tripp, the author shares numerous principles for how a parent ought to shepherd their child. And there's one specific chapter where he's explaining What a father, when he's lovingly seeking to guide his child when disciplining them, how he should conduct himself. So the father does not come to a child with a raised voice, with a hardened heart and with a heavy hand. Rather, he comes to his child and he graciously reminds this child that he, the father, has been put in this position by God. To come alongside, to shepherd, to guide the very steps of this child. And that he does all of those things out of the deep love he has for his child. Now, when done consistently, starting in the early years of a child's life, this earns parents influence in the life of their child when they're much older. And perhaps, as many of you fathers can attest, much stronger than the father now. Because the child is able to look back and still recognize the authority that the father has given by God himself. He's able to look back at his father's track record of faithfulness, and he is certain to lend him his ear. This is what we see here modeled by Paul to his spiritual child, Timothy. Timothy has been reminded by Paul of his authority and of their history together. And as such, Timothy's all the more encouraged to listen what Paul is about to say. First, we see Paul's relationship with Timothy. And second, as Paul relays the love that he has for Timothy, we see Paul's remembrance of Timothy in verses three through five, where it says, I'm grateful to God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I unceasingly remember you in my prayers night and day. Longing to see you 
having remembered your tears so that I may be filled with joy, being reminded of the unhypocritical faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am convinced that it is in you as well. Through these next three verses, Paul provides us with an even deeper explanation of his relationship with Timothy. Though we already have in mind the places they've been, the years that they've spent together, the ministry that they've done, Paul brings into sharp focus Timothy's very character. Paul begins by describing how grateful he is to God. And as you read this, or at least as I read this, I can't help but imagine that Paul, where he is right now, might be on the verge of tears as he writes of Timothy, beaming with pride and joy. He says he's grateful to God, this very God who he served with a clear conscience, just as his forefathers did. Pointing here to the fact that that Paul has lived a life in service to the Lord. Paul's saying that he can stand before the Lord with a clear conscience, knowing that since his conversion, he has lived wholly and completely devoted to God and to God alone. He has lived a life since his conversion of humility, a life of confession and a life of repentance. And though Paul was physically imprisoned by the governing authority, something that's so beautiful here, friends, is that in the truest sense, Paul is free. Even though he's held in chains, he is free from the one who could have heaped upon himself the greatest of condemnation, his own conscience. Paul is convinced that he served and continues to serve the Lord with a clear conscience, just like his forefathers did. Here, not referring to his literal ancestors who would not have been believers, but likely keeping in mind every faithful man that came before him. Speaking of Abraham, of David, of Moses, all the prophets, and even the other apostles. Paul is grateful. Not with this one-time thankfulness or gratefulness that's being presented to the Lord. But the present tense here in the verb for being grateful points to the fact that this is an attitude directed to the Lord continually and is with Paul always. And this point is made clearer when we see Paul, again, that one who serves with a clear conscience, that one who serves just like the line of faithful men before him. It is he who, with thanksgiving in his heart, remembers Timothy, that one with the unhypocritical faith. And how does he do so? And when does he do so? Every single time he approaches the Lord in prayer. Paul prayed for his spiritual son unceasingly. And every time he found an occasion for prayer, you had better believe that Paul was praying for Timothy. Theologian John Kitchen explains, it was Paul's practice to bring Timothy to mind every time he went before God in prayer. Along with this feeling of gratefulness to God, Paul also clearly mentions that intense feeling of longing that he has. 
He longs in this moment to see Timothy. And as he longs for Timothy, he he likely calls to mind that last tearful goodbye that they shared, much like he shared with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Though now the apostle, no doubt, had an understanding that he would likely be put to death, he still has hope in his heart and still experiences joy just at the thought that he might get to see Timothy one more time and that he gets to write him this last time as well. How does Paul still have so much joy when he's sitting in a cell waiting for the day of his death? Yet somehow this is what he has. He has joy, joy with the knowledge that his dear friend will try and come see him one last night, one last time. And I would also imagine he has joy as he's reminded now of Timothy's faithfulness. Now, as verse five begins, Paul says that he's reminded of the faith that is currently within him, meaning Timothy. Faith that is pure, faith that is genuine and faith that is unhypocritical. Man, this fly is sorry. There's an unrelenting fly up here. (laughs) Paul is saying that he is certain of this great faith that was grasped by Timothy and passed down to him by his grandmother and his mother. But the question is, how in the world did Paul have so much confidence in Timothy's faith? Well, again, going back to theologian John Kitchen, he says the miles and ministry shared together brought proof upon proof of his young protege's genuine reliance upon Christ. What true joy this must have brought to Timothy and to Paul as Paul is reflecting upon the faithful life of Timothy, even though he knows he is about to die. He knows there is one with genuine faith who will carry on in his ministry, even after Paul is long gone. Even after Paul's life is taken. What true joy this must have brought Paul. Now, it's important to once again, take a moment to remind ourselves of this background that I spent so much time addressing at the beginning of this sermon, because it's not just important for this message itself, but for the whole of a sermon series as we're going to study through Second Timothy. So, so sit for a moment. Think of Paul's words just for a moment. Feel the weight of the situation that he's in. He's physically broken. He's stuck in the dark. He's convinced his ever nearing demise is at hand. And perhaps, as I mentioned earlier, tears fill his eyes. But they're not tears of sorrow. They're not tears of fear. They're not tears of self-pity. Friends, they're tears of joy. They are absolute tears of joy. In his waning days, his concern is for those around him and for the ministry that young Timothy has been entrusted with, not his own life. These first five verses of Paul's second letter to Timothy are incredibly unique as they build upon one another, thrusting us to the main point in verses six and seven. But I just want to remind you, just because these first Five verses are meant to point us to the next two doesn't mean there's nothing for us to learn here. 
In fact, uh, John MacArthur had some particularly helpful pastoral notes in this area. Because we know that this passage does remind us of truths such as the importance of grace and mercy and peace of God in our lives. We understand that there's an emphasis here that even of the importance of parents faithfully shepherding their children. But more specifically, Pastor MacArthur points to six principles of motivation for those who would ever seek to disciple another. And I want to just breeze through them very quickly because there's a main point we have to get to. The first principle he gives is authority. And this is in the beginning of one and two. Just as Paul reminded Timothy of his role as an apostle, the pastor, the mother, the father, the discipler utilizes any authority or sway that they have in a gracious and loving way for God's glory, such that their words would be understood and acted upon by the one that they are shepherding. Second is altruism. The one who would disciple must have a genuine, loving, unqualified concern for the spiritual blessing of others. Third is appreciation. The one who would disciple must have gratefulness to God where he has placed them and for the one that has been entrusted to them. Fourth is appeal. The one who would disciple must have a strong conviction and desire to pray for the one that they care for, heaping up praises of thanksgiving to the Lord and prayers of supplication. Fifth is affection. The one who would disciple must have a deep love of and care for the one they disciple, just as Paul models here for Timothy. And sixth is affirmation. The one who would disciple must become proficient in recognizing, affirming, and encouraging the genuine faith that they see in others. Friends, if we were to to end our time here this morning, right here and now, we would have so much to chew on over the next week. I would encourage you, take a, a moment, just think through that list if you were fast enough to write them all down and just ask yourself, how do I measure up to the example that Paul is giving us? How am I doing in each of these areas? Now, verses one through five, as I mentioned, are are used to gain the ear of Timothy in the audience to get us to verses six and seven, where we will see third Paul's Reminder to Timothy. Let me read verses 6 and 7 for us. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self discipline. As we approach this final section, we are going to see what exactly Timothy is called to and why he is called to it. So first, with regard to Timothy's call, verse 5 begins with the phrase, for this reason. And this naturally begs the question, for what reason? What is Paul referencing? 
And using this phrase, Paul is saying, if you want to know the reason for what I'm about to say, look to what I have just said. Paul's call here, we're going to see when we speak of for this reason, which is referencing this unhypocritical faith in Timothy. The the call here by Paul is to kindle afresh the gift of God, which has been given. Now, what what seems to be spoken of here specifically is the specific giftedness Timothy received at conversion and was then amplified later on by the laying on of Paul's own hands. Yet for some reason, what seems to have taken place in the years since since Paul and Timothy talked last in the first letter. Is that Timothy's fervor. Timothy's resolve may have begun to dim ever so slightly. Timothy has been battered and bruised and exhausted by everything that is going on. There's heresy, the controversy, the conflict, the strife, all of it mounting against him as he tries to be faithful. And so Paul charges Timothy here saying, recommit yourself fully to the gifts God has given you. Don't let that flame go out. Kindle it afresh. But Timothy's exhausted, wavering just a little bit. Paul says, don't forget. Do not forget the gifting, the spiritual gifts that the Lord has given you. Do not forget the strength given you by the Holy Spirit. Timothy, don't forget your calling. Rekindle your gifts. Literally literally here, keep the fire alive. Or fan embers into flame. Don't let them die out. This is the clear what that Timothy is called to. To kindle afresh those gifts that God has given him. To keep that flame going. Timothy is called to consciously and continually allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through him. John MacArthur says, under the guidance and power of the Spirit, we must regularly exercise the gifts we have received from God, lest they atrophy from neglect and disuse. That's the call for Timothy from Paul. And that is the call, my friends, for every believer. We must kindle afresh the gifts we have been given. But secondly, why must we do so? Timothy has been called to do this, and we have been called to do this because it is what we're designed to do. If we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, friends, that's what we're called to do. That's how God has designed us. In verse 6, Paul's told Timothy and us by extension that we can't allow that flame to go out. And now he's telling us it's because that's how believers are designed, that you can't let it go out. Here we're told that we're not designed to be timid. For a spirit of timidity is not something that comes to us from the Lord. Now, I feel here that the English translation of timidity doesn't really do the word justice. Really, if we're looking at timidity, it it means that God has not given us a spirit that is characterized by cowardice. He's not given us a spirit that is characterized by shameful fear. He's not given us a spirit 
that is focused on selfishness. And that's certainly what our spirit would be should we allow that flame to go out. But friends, praise God, because that is not the spirit he has given us, not one of fear and timidity. And it's here that Paul brings the opening portion of his, as he's bringing his opening portion of the letter to close, that, that Timothy and we are provided with great encouragement because he goes into detail explaining the spirit we have been given. We see that by the grace of God, our spirit, our resolve, our innermost being is one of power, one characterized not by weakness, not characterized by timidity, but great energy and force. It's effective. It's productive. It allows God to work in and through us. By the grace of God, our spirit is one of love. One that's not selfish, self-serving, self-seeking. Instead, it's self-sacrificing. It's a character given to us by God at our new birth that desires and longs for the well-being of others. Is this not the very image that Paul has given us in this passage? And by God's grace, our spirit is also one of self-discipline. One where we are not ruled by our emotions or the world around us, but we seek to apply godly wisdom and understanding to every and any situation we face. This is the spirit that God has given Timothy. The spirit that has been in him since the day of his conversion. And that's the spirit that is inside of each and every one of us, if you are a believer. Now, in 2015, my wife, Julia, and I got married, and we had a small ceremony in our hometown of Woodenville, Washington. And as soon as the wedding concluded, the next morning, we headed out of town on a one-week-long road trip to our new home in Fullerton, California. And our first stop on the road trip was that small beach town I mentioned at the beginning of this message. It's a town that I was very fond of going there so often as a child. And and it was only natural that I wanted my new wife to experience so many of the great memories I had. And some of those memories were climbing rocks, building sandcastles, hiding or hiking the the coastline, swimming in the freezing cold water. And of course, roasting hot dogs on the beach. I remember the day we finally got to do that, this incredibly windy day. We collected all the things we needed. We took them down to the beach. We got set up for just a beautiful beach day that would, of course, be capped off by the hot dogs, set up the chairs, set up the towels, and I got to work. I laid down the wood. I got the kindling, and I tried first on a flat surface to start this fire. But what I quickly realized, though I refused to admit it, was that my fire-making abilities were subpar and that this wind would be quite a challenge. But I pressed on. And as I wasn't able to build a fire on a flat surface, I I thought, okay, I'm going to dig a hole and I'm going to build the fire in a hole to protect it from the wind. And all that did was create a sand vortex in the little hole. It was terrible. 
But I kept trying, and every time I would strike a match, it would get blown out. Strike a match, blown out again, until finally all I had to show were a couple of warm sticks and an empty matchbook. See, I got that fire started so many times. Sometimes there was even a little flame, but I was never able to coax it into being a roaring fire. So we ate cold, sandy hot dogs. Friends, we as believers, we must never allow the gifts we've been given to go unused. We must not become stagnant. We have to constantly and actively be on guard against that. However, if you find yourself in that state, if you have become wearied, if the winds of the world have come up against you and are threatening to snuff out that flame, be encouraged because God... Unlike me with the fire, he has equipped you with the right tools and the right knowledge that comes by the Holy Spirit. Fan it into flame. Exercise the great gifts that God has given you and do so because that's what God has called you to do. Now, this morning, as you have been so patient with me, as we've clearly gone over time, we've learned so much. And if I could have just another minute of your time, I need to tell you there's something here that is very important for us to apply to our lives. Friends, we see in his final days, Timothy's great or Paul's greatest concern was for those around him and for Timothy, that Timothy would live that spirit filled, that spirit ruled life. That is, of course, the general thrust of this passage. And so if you are here this morning And you have not yet accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Before you can ask, what must I do to rekindle that flame in my life? You cannot because there is no flame. My friends, I implore you, turn to Christ as both your Lord and your Savior. If you have not yet done so, turn to him. And if you don't know what that means, please come and talk to me. Talk to one of our elders, a growth group leader, somebody who brought you here this morning and ask them about the accomplished work of Christ in his birth, life, death, and his resurrection. Or if you are somebody who is here today and you are a genuine believer, I would ask you to evaluate what does your life look like at this moment? Have you wavered the slightest? Have you begun to tire? When you look at the work that God has called you to do, do you do so with joy or is it a burden? If you're tired this morning, if you're weary, I would just implore you, turn again to the Lord. Pray to him. Ask him to rekindle that flame. Ask him to help you use those gifts for your good, the building up of the body, and ultimately for his glory. May we leave here this morning being convicted of that. May we turn to Christ, striving to honor and glorify him in all we do, all the rest of the days of our life. I'm going to close in prayer now. And even though we're over, I'm going to ask the worship team to just come up. We're going to sing one last chorus together.